And if you read literature, uh, some people have analyzed, uh, have asked IVF patients how they make dispositional decisions. I've seen numbers 30 to 50% of patients say that they don't know what to do. So it's a fact of life as much as gravity. You will have this issue. You can take certain measures to reduce the risk. You can never eliminate it. Today on the show, I have a very interesting guy for you as someone that I found on LinkedIn that is an embryologist and an attorney. His name's Igor Brusel. We talk about risk, particularly with regard to embryos. Before I get into this conversation about legal risk with Igor Brusel, I want to give my daily shout out to Dr. Annette Brower because she sent me a comment recently. Dr. Brower's out of Shady Grove Fertility in Manhattan, so shout out to her. If you would like to, to get a shout out, it's the people that give me a little bit of love in, in the fan mail that, that comment on a show or send me something after the fact. So this one is to her. In my conversation with Igor today, we talk about not only risk with regard to embryo disposal, but also with regard to uh, mosaicism and new risks that are coming as the knowledge in the field advances on that topic. Igor's very interesting. I would take heed to what he says because he was originally an andrologist. He became an embryologist. He became a lab director, and then he went and became an attorney. And he still is a per diem embryologist while being a practicing attorney. So if you have questions about this matter, looking into him further might be wise. And certainly giving this episode a careful listen would be helpful. So this is my interview with Igor Brusel. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Mr. Brusel, Igor, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Good morning, Griff. How are you? I'm doing well. This is the first time that you and I have spoken face to face. You found me through LinkedIn and I often get requests to, uh, from people to come on the podcast from LinkedIn. And sometimes it's a good fit. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're just busy. Sometimes I don't think it's great for the audience or sometimes it's a sponsor just wanting to get free advertising or potential sponsor wanting to get that. But I was intrigued by you because you're an embryologist by training. You're also an attorney by licensure. So can you, and I thought anybody who's put in that amount of work can, deserves, deserves a half hour on my show. So can you tell me a little bit about your background and how those two things came together? Uh, certainly. Uh, and uh, let me just correct you. I'm a, an attorney, not just by licensure. There was some training involved as well. <laughs> certainly. Yes, um, it's been uh, it's been an interesting pathway. My first job after college, when I um, got a degree in biology, I ended up at the cryobank, and uh, I was working in a variety of projects um, involving uh, sperm processing and embryo storage and cord blood processing and storage. And after a while, I 
entered the field of embryology where I slowly but steadily climbed up the uh, ladder, so to speak, um, got to the point where I was running IVF labs. And um, around 2008, 2009, something happened in my head and I realized that too many thoughts were swirling around in, in the skull of mine, uh, particularly um, concerning ethical and legal issues in, in IVF and embryology. And I thought, well, there was a school in town where I can go and uh, become an attorney part-time in the evening, and that's what I did. And I got licensed, and uh, from that point on, I had been practicing primarily in healthcare law, um, risk management, uh, professional liability, but I've also done litigation in uh, what we call general commercial litigation. So that's the path. If there is uh, such a psychiatric uh, disease as multiple professions disorder, I, I am a perfect example of that. Yeah, we could probably diagnose you with that. A lot of people have thoughts swirl around in their head and it doesn't always lead them to law school and to keep their, their jobs. This wasn't really a career change. It was, um, it was a, almost a career addition. What were those thoughts swirling around in your head? Well, primarily, I wanted to know what exactly we're dealing with. Uh, what's, what's a pre-implantation embryo? What are the uh, ethical and legal ramifications the, um, the industry is developing and has been developing very quickly, and it's going in different directions uh, depending on what opportunities uh, new technologies allow. And that raises on a daily basis, well, not necessarily on a daily, but on a regular basis. It brings up very difficult questions that, that are uh, tough to resolve, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about some of them, whether it's business-related risk management, logistical risk management, or clinical risk management. IVF has produced a number of questions, uh, but those questions have not produced too many substantive answers. And I wanted to um, have the educational and practical background in both. And it seems like it has worked out. At least I do have a unique skill. How did you bring them both together? Because you have your training as an embryologist and you wanted a deeper understanding of the law, which is why you went to law school. But most lawyers don't learn anything about legal status of embryos in law school. So how did you, you had the legal background, but you still had to bring them together, those two different channels from your background? How did you do that? Well, it, what I did is um, how I approached my practice of law. Um, I believe that clients don't always look for strictly legal answers. They look for practical guidance. Um, it's one thing to say the law says A, B, C, and D, but it's um, somewhat different, in my view, much more productive and substantive uh, from the point of a counselor at law is to suggest what exactly do you do with that. And knowing the lab inside out, having done um, just about every procedure with my own bare hands, I can with greater ease suggest uh, certain ways uh, that my clients could deal with uh, risks that are popping out uh, from every direction. So one of the issues that was in your purview was the, the issue of the disposition of abandoned embryos. Before we talk about how that became the, the issue, what, what is the issue? There? As you can, what is the concern from your view? 
Well, let's uh, define as much as we can what's an abandoned embryo. Um, obviously, a couple or one person goes through an IVF cycle. Embryos are quite preserved, and the normal um, sequence of events is that those embryos that are cryopreserved will remain in storage and from time to time the clinic would send a bill to the uh, owner or owners of the embryos and at that point either a payment for a subsequent storage term will come in or the owners will decide um, no we want embryos moved to a different location we want them donated for one purpose or another or we want them discarded what frequently happens is that there is no response from the owners to the request for continued storage. And um, I'd like to move back to about 1995. Again, my first job at the cryobank, I didn't know embryology uh, firsthand, but I, uh, part of my responsibilities was to manage uh, an embryo storage uh, pro program. Uh, my employer, took uh, as a courtesy to an IVF clinic that seated operations, uh, took uh, several tanks of embryos um, belonging to um, university uh, clinics uh, patients. And my job was to contact those individuals and let them know that we were uh, in possession of their genetic material. And my job was to elicit some kind of a response uh, from those owners um, as to further disposition, whether they wanted to store with us, move to another location, or what have you. And I discovered very early on, before I even became an embryologist, that in my experience, the majority of individuals do not respond to requests for instructions as to what to do with the embryos. Um, and I remember uh, vividly, I would go up to my manager uh, to do a weekly uh, report and I would say, look, I'm not getting any responses. I filled out all of the green cards for certified mail. I mailed them to the address we have on file. Nothing is coming back. Either it's undeliverable or if it's delivered, there's no response. And my managers, um, and my immediate manager and her immediate managers were all scratching heads. It's like, what are you talking about? These are important things. How come people are not responding? And that's what I learned that um, quite a few patients will not respond and the IVF clinic will be um, in possession of those embryos and wouldn't know what to do with them. And um, today, as the industry develops, I think that issue will become even more acute because uh, there is uh, more um, PGS uh, aneuploidy screening done that requires that embryos be frozen. Um, there is some move to do uh, freeze-alls and transfer embryos in an unstimulated cycle. That, by definition, results in more embryos to be frozen. So unless the clinics manage their risk, the risk will become unmanageable. What do you find that the agreements often, that, that they should entail and that are often lacking from your experience? Well, my take on risk management is um, it is not about preventing a claim or a dispute or a lawsuit. There is nothing you can do to prevent someone from suing you. You can sue God for bad weather. All you have to do is fill out some papers, pay the uh, uh, filing fee, and so long as uh, there is a name under plaintiff and a name under defendant, uh, there you go, you have a lawsuit. The issue in risk management, as I interpret, 
is how do you create a system that will allow you to effectively defend a claim? And that's the main concern among uh, practitioners is that we have embryos, we haven't heard from their owners for five, seven, ten years, however many years. If we, God forbid, discard them, we'll be hit with lawsuits. Well, if you don't want to uh, drown, uh, don't get into the water. Uh, the uh, the reality is that once you start doing something, you uh, may be liable for doing it or not doing it correctly. So what I found is that many clinics don't approach embryo storage uh, from the standpoint that this is a business. It's a standalone business. It's, on a, it's not an adjunct to an IVF clinic. It has to be managed as a separate business. There has to be a set of procedures implemented and written and reviewed um, regularly. And by reviewed, I don't mean just look at the procedure on uh, January 2nd and sign off uh, for the uh, upcoming year. You have to review those, uh, the laws uh, change in every state. There are relevant uh, court decisions uh, handed out on a daily basis. You have to uh, monitor that. And you also have to uh, manage uh, the inventory and billing. I'll give you an example. The clinic couldn't even understand. Uh, they approached me about this issue, and they couldn't understand whether they even had abandoned embryos. It may sound kind of strange, but it was the standard of practice for that clinic to bill patients uh, for all of the procedures that were outstanding. So, for example, the patient would get a bill for $100 for ultrasound, $100 for something else, and then $200 for, uh, for storage. Patient returns a payment of $200. Question is, what did the patient pay for? Did the patient pay for the embryos and therefore might have a claim, hey, why did you discard the embryos when I paid for them? Uh, or did the patient pay for uh, the other procedures on the bill? And um, I, I see that billing doesn't really ring that much of a bell for, for some clinics, they outsource billing to um, third-party providers, and they just send out bills for whatever amounts are outstanding. In my opinion, if you want to get a hold of, if you want to grasp what you have and who paid for what, billing has to be separate. And uh, I've seen some agreements that, that were frankly, uh, in my opinion, just substandard. And what I heard from some clients is that, well, the lawyers are too expensive they don't know anything about IVF. We can just Google stuff and cut and paste and it looks good and we'll just use it. And I've seen uh, consents written and used for, for years. Um, that's not the way to approach it. Um, just to give you an example, I pulled up a consent, um, an existing consent uh, from, from a website of a practice. And it has an indemnification clause that states that the patient or patients, if they decide to sue the clinic, they will indemnify the owners, agents, employees, and servants. And I'm thinking, uh, when was that clause written? We don't have servants. At least if you cut and paste, read what you're getting. It's, it's laughable. You don't want to get into a court with a consent that will make the judge laugh or have uh, very ambiguous things. Here is another um, consent that, that I pulled off of the website of an existing clinic. At the top, the, clin uh, the consent, uh, it's, an, it's an agreement. Uh, it says the clinic shall store the embryos for three years, shall, okay? The clinic has affirmatively taken duty to store the embryos for three years. 
two paragraphs down below, it says, if you don't pay for 60 days after we mail you the notice, we'll throw the embryos out. Okay, if I'm, if I'm Judge Brussel and I have a piece of paper that says within two inches, we shall store, and then within 60 days we'll discard, well, what do you mean? The general rule is that agreements are interpreted uh, against the drafter, meaning if you were the person who wrote it, you can't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. We shall didn't really mean we shall. It meant we might. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can give you multiple examples of things that, uh, that are clearly ambiguous. And the last thing you want to do if you have to defend a claim is have an ambiguous uh, provision. So um, as an attorney, you're, you're looking at these agreements because you're, you're mitigating risk and you want the, the language to be explicit uh, in the case that you have to defend a claim. But there's also a utility in using the agreement properly that it simply sets the expectation with the patient uh, up front that if, if, the, if the language is correct and explicit in the, in, in the initial agreement that you might encounter less problems with, with the, the patient because their expectations have been set properly from the beginning. Is that also part of it? That's exactly right. Uh, the, the very basic tenant of what an agreement is, it's, it's a documentation of the intent of the parties. Uh, not only uh, intent, but the properly worded agreement should do exactly what you what you said. It should state what the duties and rights of the parties are very clearly. It shouldn't say, um, I'm, I'm referring to yet another consent I pulled up on the internet. Uh, we will uh, take all reasonable measures to contact you. The next paragraph, we will take all diligent measures to contact you what's diligent, what's reasonable. You have to defend a claim. The judge has to decide whether you did something that's reasonable or diligent. Is there any difference? And if there is, is it diligent? I suppose that we will notify you by email. We will notify you by mail at these particular times. Uh, if, if, we, uh, if we don't hear from that time, then it's expected that... It- that's one way of approaching it. You can also, uh, I suppose, say we will contact you based upon our then uh, established procedures. And then you, you have a procedure that's contemporaneous and uh, you follow that procedure uh, to the T. Um, you don't necessarily have to explicitly state all of the steps you take. Uh, the uh, drawback of that, if you commit to something, you better yeah, yeah, do it. And prove that you did it. And absolutely, everything has to be documented. If it's not written, it has been done. There are pros and cons of being very specific and ambiguous, and it has to be done uh, uh, skillfully, uh, preferably by an attorney who understands what IVF is all about. Because if you deal with an attorney who doesn't know the in and outs of IVF, some of the provisions may, may be just impractical to enforce. So I think we might also be making an assumption that patients know what happens to embryos after the fact. And this is really timely, Igor, because I received a message from a woman that does not work in the fertility field that 
she, she and I were acquaintances in, in work in a, in a previous career life. And she was very interested in this topic and she, uh, because she's going through it at, as a patient. And, and her message says this, it would be nice to hear how some doctors discuss this problem prior to a patient. The problem being that she doesn't know what to do with her embryos right now because she didn't think about it. It would be nice to hear how some doctors discuss this problem prior to a patient starting their IVF process because I, we hadn't thought about it. An agreement to contract is an excuse to go over an opportunity to go over something explicitly. Correct. And I frankly, I will admit, I don't know the answer to the question whether every physician goes over every word of every document. In my experience, uh, things like uh, consents and contracts are presented to patients uh, by clerical staff and explained by uh, individuals other than the physicians. I also know that if patients have questions, they will bring it up to the doctor and the doctor will make every effort to explain. The, the only way to know is to um, somehow collect that information from every physician in the country, and that's obviously not practical. But it is important for patients to read what they sign. It is absolutely critical. And if they have questions, they should be asking and demanding answer because you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it, if you don't understand what you're signing, then that's not informed consent and um, it's, it's not good. So the, the argument could be, well, you know, how can we possibly get informed consent for everything? Because, it, or, or, or how can we have this level of detailed conversation because the patient is getting so much information at once, they're inundated. And I think this makes the, the case for having as much content and as much process improvement along the way as possible to have some of these conversations so that the time going over these uh, with, with, with clerical staff or anyone else at the practice can be devoted to uh, reinforcing what and clarifying what's been said rather than introducing a, a new concept for the first time. Because I think if it is introducing concept for the first time that it will be the deer in headlights. And we used to do presentation as a, our firm used to do presentations and proposals. And we no longer, we stopped two or three years ago. We don't do that anymore. We don't do proposals. Instead, I have a conversation with the, the, the group. We agree to something in concept. And until we agree at investment level timeline and what's required from both of us in outcome, I don't put, I, I, I don't do anything. And then once we agree to that in concept, then our, what would have been a presentation or proposal meeting isn't going over any kind of slide deck. It is going through the service agreement line by line. So it's not the first time that they're seeing this. And then we're reserving that time for, for making sure that we are really on the same page because we're going over through it explicitly. And I'm telling you, Igor, from doing it that way, as opposed to before where it was, where it was a lot more ambiguous or was, Oh yeah, you know, we're, yeah, we don't need to put it in a contract. We don't need to go over that together. So from doing it this way, it seems like, oh, this is far more litigious reviewing a contract together. I'm telling you, we, it is so, we, we almost never have questions about what's in scope and, and not. And I've never had to enforce a contract, knock on wood, because we're so explicit about it up front. So I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're talking about, but this is where I view uh, the opportunity to get as much information to the patients 
mind as possible beforehand and then using the opportunity to review the the agreement explicitly yes it's it's certainly relevant uh you have to keep in mind that physicians operate in a slightly different legal uh framework the duty to consent the standard of care basically for that is that in some states it is phrased i'm paraphrasing but the general rule is that physicians should convey the information that a reasonable physician with the same training and experience would have conveyed. Some states have a patient-oriented standard, which uh, stands for the proposition that physicians should tell the patient what a reasonable patient would want to know. Now, we can debate whether, in the final analysis, uh, this entails telling more or less, depending on the, uh, on the standard. I would uh, prefer to uh, be more conservative, but at the, at the end of the day, it has to be a balance. You can't possibly lay everything out on the paper and expect the patient to digest and understand. It's, it's a high-tech industry with lots of unknowns, with uh, sometimes probabilities and uh, possibilities and assumptions, and to expect that every patient will, will know every possible detail is, is just naive, but there is there's a certain amount of information that must go uh, on paper and the patient has to be informed. And with regard to that and embryos, you absolutely have to, uh, in my opinion, tell the patients or the patient that it's their responsibility uh, to make sure that they remain in contact with the practice. And it has to be on paper, it has to be part of their duties, and that's, that's pretty much where I'm coming from. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago. Our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, um, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice. We're Brad in Seattle. You have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of uh, consulting for just, just a uh, couple hours uh, would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to retiring. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com. 
have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. What else can, maybe it's, maybe it's all entirely in the agreement, what else can clinics do to rede- reduce their legal risk presented by abandoned embryos? Some may uh, choose to include something that's called liquidated damages provision, which is a concept that generally recognized in every state. And it uh, basically means if you can't possibly predict the value of, of the property that is in possession of one individual or one party, if that property disappears or is lost, you agree upfront to the maximum amount that the losing party will get as compensation. Um, and that's opposed to equitable relief. Is that correct? Liquidated that, damages is opposed to equitable relief? Support and arguing uh, as to the value of the embryo. I don't know how you put a number, a dollar number on the embryo. Uh, the legal standard of what the embryo is, the, the pre-implantation embryo, is as ambiguous as you can get. It says something to the effect that Pre-implantation embryos occupy an interim category somewhere between property and persons with special status and special respect because of their potential to become human beings. Well, what exactly does that mean? I don't know. I haven't seen or heard an attorney who knows what that means. I haven't read a single court opinion that explains what that means. And this notion has been massaged in legal literature for, well, it's 92, where we're talking uh, quite a few years, a couple of decades. With that ambiguity, nobody wants to go to court and start arguing whether it's a $10 embryo or a $5 embryo, whether it had potential, didn't have potential. And if it didn't have potential, as many embryos don't, what kind of a respect does it deserve? I frankly haven't seen anyone disrespecting an embryo. from what I know, every embryologist, every physician treats the embryo with the utmost respect. Um, and from the practical standpoint, um, I think that standard, by the way, um, our listeners and viewers can, uh, can thank the American Fertility Society that introduced that notion into the um, head of the judge in 1992, in the case Davis versus Davis, uh, Supreme Court, Tennessee. And that's where we live, that's the reality totally unworkable legal standard, at least if you have an enforceable provision, you might be able to limit your risk. I'm not saying that the court will uh, agree to enforce it, but it's better than having nothing on paper. Uh, and finally, there is, uh, there is nuclear option. And as other nuclear options, it has been used once, in my opinion, pretty effectively in North America and Canada where um, the practice went to court and filed something called Petition for Declaratory Judgment. Every court, uh, every state in the United States allows that procedure. And basically what the uh, Canadian clinic did in 2013, they went to the judge and said, look, we have spent a year and a half calling patients, emailing patients, sending mail, certified mail. We even hired a private investigator to uh, skip trace owners who have not been in contact with our clinic and we still can't find some of them. So they went to the court and said, judge, allow us to enforce our rights under the contract and dispose of the embryos. And the court said, look, I've seen what you've done. Here we go. Why didn't you place an ad in the newspaper 
will wait a while after that. And if nobody responds, you discard those embryos. Can be done, has been done. I certainly can see many of our listeners cringe at the idea of running into court and seeking relief that way. But let's circle back to where we started. You have an issue, you have a problem with abandoned embryos. It's not going away. Either you do something about it or you don't. If you want to kick the can down the road, that's fine. You can live with that business decision, uh, but then don't complain. Uh, but if it is a problem, you have to do something about it. And that perhaps is one option. Yeah, if we're choosing between two idioms, I tend to prefer nipping in the bud over kicking the can. So what are the other, I, I guess, what are the, are there, are there any key components of a storage agreement to help reduce legal risk that I didn't ask you about? Well, a storage agreement should be a storage agreement. Um, I have seen uh, clinics combine it with a consent uh, in one document. Uh, I would prefer not to do it because the uh, rules of construction of consents and agreements are different. Um, and uh, if you want to avoid ambiguity and keep the court basically uh, narrowly focused on one particular concept, it's, it's better to do it that way rather than introduce uh, consent uh, law or mix it up with contract law. You want to reduce any ambiguity. That's, that's my position. Number two, you have to clearly state whether you will store the embryos for as long as the patients want, or there is a set limit after which the embryos have to be either transferred out or disposed of in, in uh, whatever manner you allow patients uh, to, to dispose of. Donate to science if you can do it, donate to um, proficiency testing or discard, but you have to set a time limit in my opinion. Some practices have one year. I've seen practices do three years, five years. It's a business decision. But if you want to reduce the liability, I think you have to make it very clear that we're not storing the embryos beyond a certain point. Thirdly, you have to be very clear what are the duties of the patient or the patients are with regard to communication with the clinic. You have to be very clear. And you have to be very clear as to what measures you will take to contact. Now, you again may say we will use then procedures then in place, but you better have those procedures and follow them. Or if you want to commit to a specific sequence of events, say we will give you two phone calls, three emails, five registered letters, and, and six uh, certified letters. If you want to do that, that's a decision you uh, you can make, but make sure that you follow on that. And then um, have the contract reviewed by, by an attorney. Uh, you don't want to include provisions that are unenforceable. I, I, I've seen clinics uh, include a provision that states your non-responsiveness to our letters constitutes express consent to discarding the embryos. Silence is not express consent. You can't say that if a person doesn't respond to a letter, uh, that is express consent. You can say that your silence, you can set out the default provisions and non-responsiveness may trigger termination of the agreement, but you're not going to be, in my opinion, very successful by going to court and say, hey, uh, this patient didn't say anything. That's express authorization. These are two self-contradicting theories. Is, 
in your view, is there any easy solution to disposing of abandoned embryos? Easy? No. I, I don't think there is. Uh, because you're dealing with the reality, which is a fact as much as gravity, that there will be patients who will not respond to your request for instructions on how to dispose of the embryos. That's a fact of life. And if you read literature, uh, some people have analyzed, uh, have asked IVF patients how they make dispositional decisions. I've seen numbers 30 to 50% of patients say that they don't know what to do. So it's a fact of life as much as gravity. You will have this issue. You can take certain measures to reduce the risk. You can never eliminate it. But um, there, there are no easy answers. The only that I can think of, if you don't want to deal with liabilities of frozen embryos, don't freeze them. And that is uh, something that I think very few uh, listeners will find palatable. I think you're probably right about that. Another uh, topic that you had hit me to, and, and maybe it's a topic for another day, maybe it's, it's related, but uh, you had mentioned legal risks regarding mosaic embryos. Uh, mosaic embryos as as a phenomenon, entered the field quite a few years ago uh, when um, pre-implantation genetic screening was done on day three embryos with a limited number of chromosome probes. And we quickly realized that one embryo uh, doesn't necessarily represent the rest of the embryos. And I, I was involved in a, a study when we biopsied two embryo, uh, two blastomeres out of the same embryo, and we're getting different results. So th this, is a not, this is not a new concept. The extent of mosaics is, is, is a new concept because we have far more precise uh, tools now at our disposables with next uh, generation sequencing to reveal the extent of mosaicism. And that's an issue that I think as the industry matures and more and more cycles are done and more and more mosaic embryos are transferred, um, I, I think uh, there, is a, there is a possibility that there will be uh, an impacted uh, child who will be born from an embryo diagnosed as a low mosaicism and uh, fairly low risk to transfer. There are also issues of consent. It's a very complicated from the scientific standpoint issue to explain to a patient. And you have to stay within the legal requirements of what constitutes uh, effective consent. And it's not easy to do. Uh, try explaining to a regular individual what segmental aneuploidy is or uh, allele dropout and things of that nature. You can certainly get away uh, in some cases with very general provisions, but frankly, the law, in my opinion, is developing uh, um, in the direction that general phrases like we're not aware of any uh, side effects or this procedure is generally uh, safe. I think that era is going away. I'll give you an example. There was an interesting case settled last year in Maryland. Uh, the first one, as far as I can tell on this topic, the plaintiff uh, sued uh, an IVF practice on the basis of not getting informed consent. The, the plaintiff, the male, underwent, had his uh, sperm sample collected, and ICSI was performed. It's not quite clear why exactly ICSI was performed. On the day of egg retrieval, the um, semen parameters were fairly normal. They weren't normal in the past, so the clinic probably proceeded on that uh, fact. But the consent form stated 
that, and I'm looking at the court decision here, that ICSI may involve unknown risks to the baby. And while there seems to be no higher overall incidence of congenital malformations, the risk cannot be totally ruled out. Now, you may be asking uh, yourself, uh, our listeners may be asking, what does ICSI have to do with uh, mosaic embryos? It's a general proposition that I am noticing and pointing out that a con general consent that says, well, risks are, cannot be ruled out, but we're not quite sure. The court didn't buy that. The court said, look, plaintiff came in and brought in a bunch of articles as far as five years before the lawsuit that suggested a very strong association between ICSI and congenital malformations. And even though the plaintiff did not have the resultant fetus uh, did not have the same malformations that had been reported in the literature before. The, the concept allowed this plaintiff, in my mind, to, to prevail. The case was settled very quickly after the judge ruled in favor of plaintiff. And the ruling stands for the proposition that you can't just get away with general phrases, uh, something we don't quite know, blah, blah, blah. You have to be on top of this. And so what can clinics do to, to mitigate their risk with mosaicism? Is, is it giving as much information as they have at the time? These are the risks as we understand them. Do they have to update it every quarter, every half year, every year? What, what can clinics do to mitigate their risk here? Well, I think the clinics should not be uh, disposing with general phraseology. I think the clinics should indicate known risks or known unknowns. God knows, um, mosaicism has raised a number of debates in, in the IVF arena. There are some ardent uh, opponents of the entire concept of pre-implantation um, aneuploidy screening because of the existence of mosaic embryos. And the clinics should, some, should include some provisions consistent with current literature uh, that indicate where we are uh, in this sphere. And I certainly wouldn't go back to consents every month and, or every time there is a case report in some lesser known uh, journal. It's impractical to monitor all the literature in the world. But I would think that it would be prudent to review these consents on an, on an annual basis and see what the uh, state of the art is. Are there any reports uh, linking mosaicism to adverse outcomes? Perhaps there aren't any and you indicate that. These consents are living organisms and you need to maintain them. Uh, you need to um, do diligent search uh, on an annual basis, I think, and update these consents accordingly. Igor, you've given us so much to consider with regard to the risks facing embryo storage with disposing of abandoned embryos, newer issues regarding mosaicism. How would you like to conclude with our audience, knowing that many of them are practice owners, some of them do work in the lab. How would you want to, to conclude with them? Well, I would like to express my sincere belief that risk management is a proactive rather than a reactive endeavor. Again, you can't bring the probability of a lawsuit to a zero, but you can create a structure and legal support is one leg of that structure, one support beam, if you will, that needs to be considered. It is far easier to prevent things from happening or at least come up with implementable procedures 
to put in place and think proactively. I just recently, um, it, it hit me, I opened up one of the uh, major journals and the article written by very respected physicians uh, coming from a very respected uh, uh, medical school starts with the phrase, prior preserved embryos are unexpected consequence of IVF. I'm sorry, it's the very essence of IVF. It's just as expected as, as, as uh, you know, gravity. You have to be business oriented and approach this as a businessman. You have to manage the risk. You can't just assume that, well, you know, if, if I get a lawsuit, I'll just call up my insurance carrier. They'll get the lawyers on the case and that'll be the end of it. And uh, I also wanted to bring to uh, the attention of our audience something that I haven't heard people think about, or at least verbalize in my discussions, but I have long thought that this is an underestimated risk. It's not just about lawsuits. Patients do have a right to file administrative complaints with medical boards. Think of the uh, physician who transferred eight embryos to a woman, the optimal. He lost his license. There was no lawsuit in that case. The medical board said that's unprofessional conduct. And I think many physicians, in my experience, I've dealt with physicians of different uh, specialties. Not a single one could tell me exactly what are the disciplinary powers of the medical board. And those powers are very wide. The, the laws are written to give medical boards a very wide um, and, uh, authority to discipline physicians. And I think that's something that many providers don't think about. It doesn't cost any money to file a complaint of unprofessional conduct and um, the board will take it from there. I wouldn't recommend dealing with medical boards. It's not fun. So if, if, the, if the patient feels that you did not consent and did not express exactly what the, the power of aneuploidy screening is, what are the uh, existing problems, if the, if the patient feels it was just a waste of money and time and didn't produce a desirable result, they can file a complaint and then you have an investigation on your hand. So it's not only about legal risk. Uh, there, is, uh, there is a substantial risk, substantial in terms of its effects when, when a state medical board gets involved. You know, if, if, if you lose a lawsuit, uh, you have to pay somebody. If you uh, lose an administrative hearing, you can lose your license. You've given us a lot to think about regarding risk. Igor, do you work for one lab when you're an embryologist or are you per diem embryologist? Per diem. So that means if, if you don't hire him as an attorney, you can hire him for your lab. Igor, we're going to link to your contact info in the show notes and people will find this resource uh, useful and hopefully they reach out to you if they want more information. Igor Brusel, thanks so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Opportunity. I, th I, I sincerely hope our audience will find it useful and educational. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.